All right, well, once again, good morning. Um, I always say this, uh, but I always mean it. It's great to be with you and to have the opportunity to open up the Word of God together. Uh, for those of you who are new with us, maybe joining us for the first time or you know, newer to FEC, we are studying the Gospel of John together in this season. And today we are in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Um, in terms of the Gospel of John, and really the scriptures, the whole narrative, the scriptures as a whole, other than Jesus' resurrection and the discovery of the empty tomb, um, it honestly doesn't get much better than John chapter 11. Uh, as one old British pastor put it, for grandeur and simplicity, for pathos and solemnity, nothing was ever written like this. Or... Uh, to say that in modern terminology, because you're like, what in the world did you just say? In modern ter terminology, this is amazing. <laughs> um, it's the story and account of the miracle of our Lord Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. There is nowhere else in the scriptures that bring together the humanity and deity of Jesus like this. Because it's here we see Jesus in his full majesty in his full personhood. Here we, we see Jesus as the one who is sovereign and all-powerful, even over death. And at the same time, we see a savior, we see a Lord, we see a king who is full of sympathy, empathy. He's full of love, full of care, and full of affection. Through this miracle, our author, John, as always, wants us to truly know who Jesus is. But more than that, through this miracle, John wants to increase our faith. He wants us to increase our faith. He wants us to know that anything, anything is possible with our great God. And so let's get into this amazing text now. John chapter 11, I won't waste any more time, beginning in verse one. This is what the word of God says. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. By the way, that hasn't happened yet. We're gonna see that in chapter 12, beginning in the new year. Whose brother, Lazarus, was ill, sick. So the sisters sent to him a messenger saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So as soon as we open up this chapter, John chapter 11, we are told that there is this certain man who is sick. And if you've been here with us throughout any of John's gospel, working through the life of Jesus, you can just read those six words right there and already know what to expect. People who were sick, blind, paralyzed, people who are troubled, people in need, people who are thirsty, people who are hungry, were always coming to Jesus. And he would always do something about that, wouldn't he? He was always helping, always providing, always healing. That's what he did. But here in chapter 11, the story is unique. It's a little bit different. 
So there is a man who is sick, and we are told more specifically that his name is Lazarus, and he's from this place called Bethany. And we also know here from the text that he is the brother of two other significant people in the New Testament, a woman named Mary and her sister Martha. More than that, we are told that this family had come to believe in Jesus. Apparently, they are following him. Jesus had a relationship with this family. And we learn that not only is there a relationship, but there's a deep, intimate relationship with this family. They are very, very close. In fact, it's rightly assumed from other places in the gospel that Jesus would often stay with this family during his travels. And at times, they would travel with him. There is no record of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary being married, by the way. Um, and so it seems like they're living in this house together. Maybe as singles, Jesus comes and they're hanging out. There's this kinship, this brotherhood, um, going towards the things of the kingdom together. Okay, so we have that. The other side of that is the context that we have or we find ourselves in. If you remember last week, at the end of chapter 10, we are told that Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he's staying in a different place, Perea, or another name for that, Bethany, a different Bethany. And he is doing ministry there with his disciples. He's in this uh, three-month time period of doing ministry. We know that people, it's awesome, people are coming to faith. People are believing. People are understanding who he is and choosing to follow him. And it's in the midst of that, that ministry, sort of uh, revival in some regards, in the midst of that, that a messenger comes to Jesus and tells him this news. Jesus, Lazarus, who you love, is sick. I think it's important, by the way, to understand that the word love there, Lazarus, who you love, that word love there is not agape. This is really important to the text. It's not agape, actually, meaning the emphasis here on love is not a divine love. It's not a God-to-man love. The word here is actually phileo. It's interesting. This is the love of a friend. It's very human. It's meant to be. Jesus, in other words, loved this man as a friend. He loved this man as a brother. He had a personal affection for him. Now, of course, we know that as God, Jesus loves the world. <laughs> that as God, he loves his own. We've been talking about this. He loves his children. Jesus loves his sheep perfectly, but that's not the thought here. That comes in a second. <laughs> it's later. The thought right now is that this is a person whom Jesus had fellowship with, who in some regards filled a need in Jesus's own life as a friend. And can I just say this as well? You know, whenever we, we talk about the humanity of Jesus, you know, Jesus being fully God and then fully human. Whenever we talk about the humanity of Jesus, whenever we do that, we always tend to talk about how Jesus was hungry or how he got thirsty 
Or we like this one, how Jesus needed sleep, right? And so he's human, he needed sleep. And all those things are true. They made Jesus human. But you know, what ultimately makes us as human beings, what also ultimately makes us unique as human beings is relationships. Right? The ability to have relationship, connection with others. Jesus desired relationship. He wanted friendship. And he had that, apparently, greatly with Lazarus. So Mary and Martha send a messenger to inform Jesus of what's happening with Lazarus. And then look at verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters, and he loved Lazarus. By the way, that end little phrase there, um, John wants us to know there is divine love in the story. That word is agape now. <laughs> Jesus loved agape, this family. Why? Because they belong to him spiritually at this point. Jesus loves with a divine love. And he loves with a human love. It's coupled there. We see both of those things present here in the text. It's a really beautiful thing when you understand the language. But then Jesus says something that's both remarkable here, and perhaps it's actually a little bit uncomfortable to the reader. Because first of all, notice with me that Jesus says this sickness does not lead to death. And, and on the surface, that's actually really ironic. It's ironic because what we're about to see in just a moment is that when Jesus utters these words, when he speaks these words, Lazarus is already dead. So what, is, what exactly does Jesus mean by this? What is Jesus getting at? What is he saying? Well, the answer is actually found right there in the text. He says, this death, or Lazarus' death, is for the glory of God so that I, Jesus, the Son of God, may receive glory, he says. In other words, this man's sickness is not about his dying. That's your focus. But this man's sickness is not about his dying. This man's sickness is about my plans. This man's sickness is about my purposes. And Jesus can say that, by the way, because death is nothing to him. And death is nothing for him. Jesus, you see, Jesus knows that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Spoiler, okay? He knows the end result of this. All of this before it even happens. And so he's essentially saying, my focus and my perspective isn't like yours. I'm focused on the end result of things. And I'm focused on what I'm going to do. You're focused on what's happening and the circumstances around you, right? Isn't that always true? And so Jesus gets this news. He tells the messenger that Lazarus' illness is ultimately not about death. It's about the glory of God and his own personal glory. And then we're told something a bit odd. We know that Jesus loves Lazarus as a brother. He loves, that, he loves him with a divine love. We've been told this. And then it says, verse 6, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You might expect to read, if you don't know the story or you're not familiar with the story, what you would expect to read in our humanness would be this. He, he heard that Lazarus was ill, and so he left immediately to be with the family, 
to, to comfort them, to go to them, to, to heal Lazarus, right? To do a miracle, right? That's what we would expect to read in the text. And that's a right expectation because that's what Jesus is always doing throughout the gospels. But no, we don't see that. We hear that Jesus heard the news and then we're told that he stayed where he was for two more days. Jesus loved Lazarus, he loved Mary, he loved Martha so much that he didn't go to them. He loved them so much that he didn't help them right away. Now, we need to be clear here, very clear, I think it's important as well, that this choice by Jesus, the choice that Jesus makes right here, was almost certainly not just mystifying, but extremely frustrating for the disciples. And we're going to see it was absolutely agonizing for Mary and her sister, Martha. And for those of us here, if you don't know the end of the story, this text right here is hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Like when, when I really believe I need God to move in a certain way in my life, I'm talking personal, maybe you can relate to me. But when I, when I really believe that I need God to move in a certain way in my life, especially when I believe there's an urgency, it is very difficult for me to believe and understand that God's delay in his answering is out of love for me. Right? I almost certainly and instantly think that his delay is about punishing me. Have you ever felt that way? Right? My, my instinct is to say, what have I done wrong to deserve God ignoring me right now? What, what have I done wrong? Why is he punishing me like this? Why isn't he hearing me? Why isn't he like, giving me breakthrough? Why isn't he taking me through the valley like he, like he says he would do? What, what have I done wrong? But Jesus is saying here, I know what's best. My timing is best. And though there might be agony and struggle and a heartache and pain, I have a good and perfect purpose for my delay. And let me just say this as well. Just because we know the truth, just because we know this is true, just because we know that God works in this way at times, actually many times, doesn't make it always easy to accept, does it? <laughs> I'd much rather talk about this and preach about this up here than live it out. <laughs> but this is the case. We're going to see that God's way is best. Okay? So for now, you just have to trust that. <laughs> Going on to verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? So the two days of waiting, the delay, passed very quickly in our text. And now Jesus says, hey guys, it's time. We're going back to Judea. Now, let's not forget, we can't forget, it's Judea. It's that region, it's Jerusalem, where the majority of the religious Jews are, where they live. It's where he's hated the most. And that's why his disciples are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Right? You're on the most wanted list there. 
they're going to kill you. They've been trying to kill you again and again and again, and you've escaped again and again and again, but what, what, what if you don't escape this time? Why in the world would you want to go back there? And probably they're thinking, why would you want us to go back there with you? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. We see here that just for a moment, just for a brief pause, Jesus steps back from concern or his concern over the whole Lazarus and his family situation to address a very significant and very important point. And he addresses this point by speaking to the disciples in a simple proverb. Some have called it a parable. And here's what Jesus is saying through this whole hour, day, night, light thing. What he's saying is, don't be confused by this, it's really simple. What he's saying is, you and I cannot lengthen the daylight, nor can we shorten the daylight. Nothing we do can change the number of hours that we have in a day. It is what it is, and it is fixed by God. There's nothing we can do. And the point Jesus is making is, the same way it is with the sun in the sky and hours of the day, it's the same way with your life. Your life is no different. No enemy can shorten your life. No friend of yours can lengthen your life. It is what it is. Your time is fixed by God. Doesn't matter how many vitamins you take. <laughs> and so knowing that, Jesus says, I will not stumble and lack faith in that reality, in that truth. I believe, he's saying, that nothing will happen to me outside of God's purpose and outside of God's plan, meaning, meaning my time on earth is ordained by God. It is already determined. There's already a plan in place. It's already set. So I'm going to go forward with my life with confidence, with boldness, and with purpose. And of course, the same should be true for you and I as well. Our time here on earth is fixed by God. We do not know the day or the hour that he will bring us home. But it is fixed, which means that like Jesus, we should be, need to be busy about doing the Lord's business right here and now. That's what this means that we should not waste even a day. And simultaneously, we should not live our life in fear. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus understood that his appointed time made him safe and secure. His life is in God's hands. Our life is in the Lord's hands as well. So he continues, verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So it's here now where we see that Jesus not only tells them that he understands what has happened or happening to Lazarus, but it's also where he reveals his plan to the disciples. 
He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep and I need to go wake him up. Either way, that's a much softer and tender way of speaking of death, isn't it? But Jesus speaks of death this way because it's temporary. Death is temporary. Our physical death is temporary, which is why we see the term sleep used for death all throughout the scriptures. Now, we see here, it's sort of, it's funny. It made me laugh at least. The disciples don't catch that. They're like, hey, uh, Jesus, why would we go back to Judea, that dangerous place, just to wake somebody up from a nap? That's literally what they say. This doesn't make sense. Jesus can use anyone, okay? This is good news for all of us, right? And so Jesus tells them clearly while then adding something really shocking. Then Jesus told them plainly, because they need it, guys, Lazarus has died. (laughs) But then he says this, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, right? It doesn't get much more clear than that. Lazarus is dead, followed by, and I'm really glad I wasn't there for it. Right? Those, for everything we know about God, everything we know about Jesus, those two statements don't seem to go together at all, do they? But again, Jesus could see what the disciples could not see. He could be glad because, again, he knows the ultimate outcome, and he told them the ultimate outcome. I'm going to wake him up. Jesus knew he was going to do that. And that through waking Lazarus up, he knew he would receive glory. He knew that all their grief would be comforted. He knew that life would be restored. He knew that more people would come to follow him as Lord and Savior, and those who already followed him would be strengthened, that they would believe more deeply in who he is and the things that he said. That's why Jesus can look at all of this and say, I'm really glad about this. I'm not glad that our friend is dead. No. But I am glad at what will be the end result of all this. Now look at verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Strong and courageous words here. I'll give you two quick side notes about this because I think it's worth it. As a side note, church history tells us that Thomas was called the twin. I bet most of us didn't know that. He's called the twin. Why? Well, there's a few scholars out there who say, oh, he was probably a twin. He had another brother. Most likely not. Most of church history actually tells us, and there's some decent extra biblical data that tells us, that Thomas was called the twin because he most looked like Jesus in physical appearance amongst the disciples. He resembled Jesus in appearance, physical appearance. Again, that's not in the Bible, but there is some pretty good historical basis and data for that. So Thomas, the one who looks kind of like Jesus, says, let's go with Jesus, and if he dies, we'll die with him. Pretty bold of him to say, don't you think? Particularly if he looks like Jesus, going to a place where everyone wants Jesus dead. Pretty bold of him to say that. And that leads into the other side note here, uh, You know, I was just thinking about this this week. 
you know, maybe it would be better for those of us who have been churched and we know the Bible, I think it would be a lot better if we stopped calling this guy Thomas, Doubting Thomas. I think every time I've referred to him, I, really, even in preaching, I'm just, oh, you know that guy, Doubting Thomas. It just kind of slips off the tongue. If you don't know the story, right, there will come a time after Jesus' resurrection where the apostles present to Thomas, like, he's risen from the dead. Like, Thomas, he, he's alive. And, and, and Thomas is like, no, no, no way. He doesn't believe. He doubts. And so church history has designated him that name, Doubting Thomas. You know, it's rough. You know, but I was thinking about it, and I think you, and I, you, and you can agree with me, that I don't think any of us would want to be identified by the worst moment of our life. Could you imagine the worst mistake you ever made in your entire life? Something that you did in secret. Just amongst close friends. And the rest of your life, you're identified with that title. That's what we do with Thomas. How many of you want to be identified by the worst moment of your life? Any amens to that? By the way, Thomas, Thomas, by the way, his story isn't of doubt because Thomas does believe after seeing Jesus. He touches Jesus. Right? And we know he would live his life for Jesus. And more than that, we know also that he would die. He would die for his faith in Christ. Told, deny him, and he will refuse. He will refuse. So maybe we should extend Thomas some grace. <laughs> maybe we should call him, you know, courageous Thomas. Let's give Thomas some grace in the same way that we have all received grace. Amen? (laughs) But anyway, Thomas, he actually here, he shows great courage here. Boldness. It's one of the few times we don't hear Peter speak. Strong faith. And so he and the rest of the disciples, we're not told what they say, but they collectively decide to go with Jesus. They start making the journey to Bethany, to Judea, near Jerusalem. Verse 17, now when Jesus and the disciples came, so we know now they're in Bethany. It's happened that quick. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb, dead, for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them or to mourn with them concerning their brother. So Jesus gets the message about Lazarus. He decides to wait two days before leaving to go with them. And now we are told that by the time that Jesus and the disciples arrive to Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Four days in the tomb. Now, I'm sure there are a good number of us in the room who know this, but there's likely a number of us in the room who do not know this. Being in the tomb for four days is extremely significant, that phrase there. It has meaning and purpose. You see, there was this Jewish tradition in and around the first century in the time of Christ that said, that taught that when a person died, 
the spirit of that person would hover over or near the body for three days, okay? If you go to Jerusalem, even now, actually, when a person dies, um, the tombs are oftentimes, especially if they don't have money, the tombs are outside. The casket is literally like, you could walk by and, and touch it. You can touch the casket. It's rock, usually. And if you walk by it, you'll see some of them, the lid is closed. And there will be a few others, stay away from these ones, but there'll be a few others where there are rocks on the corners, and then the lid is placed on those rocks, and there's a little gap in that tomb. So technically, if you took a flashlight and peeked in, you, could, you might be able to see, okay? And the reason they do that is because some Jewish people still go by this tradition, that for three days, the spirit of that person, the soul of that person, still has the opportunity to enter back into the body. And so, you know, the tradition is weird, but they'd say, well, we wouldn't want to close the tomb because the soul has to get through that crack and into the body, right? It's just a tradition thing, right? And so for a Jewish person, during the first three days after a person's death, there was still hope, understand that. There was hope that that family member, that friend, that loved one might come back to life. Now, I'm not saying that ever happened. I've researched. I've never read any record that said that that ever happened. But the point is, for Jewish people in this context, they lived with a sense of hope for those three days. There's grief, there's mourning, but there is a glimmer of hope. And so, you might think of it this way, or say it this way, that when a Jewish person was dead for four days, they viewed that person as dead, dead. At the four-day mark, they knew, they believed, there was absolutely no chance of resuscitation of that body. All hope is lost. And when you understand, that's why context matters to the Bible, and that's why when you understand that Jewish way of thinking, now you can get a little bit of a taste, a, a, a little bit more of why Jesus makes the decision to show up on the scene on the fourth day. See, Jesus, Jesus is about to do an impossible miracle. A miracle that no one could ever believe could be done but we'll get to that later. What else do we see here? Well, we see here that there are a lot of people present for this funeral, for this time of mourning. We're told that people all around Jerusalem come to this family. Apparently they are known in some regard, and so the masses are there. And I think that's important to Jesus because it means that there are going to be a lot of eyewitnesses to what he's about to do. So that's the situation as Jesus arrives to Bethany. Then verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, if you just would have been here, if you would have showed up earlier, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, you know, I, um, 
I, I got to be honest. I'll be transparent with you for a second. I, I don't know exactly how to take what Martha said here. It, it feels like she's disappointed in Jesus. She's certainly hurt. She's, she's genuinely confused. Jesus, you, you know us so well. Jesus, you didn't show up when we needed you. You didn't come through for us like we expected. And you know, I thought about this as well. We have to understand that these sisters knew that Jesus healed strangers. That Jesus healed and helped everyone who was in need. Even when he was totally exhausted, he never turned people away. Even those who had no connection at all to him, these sisters have, have seen this from him with their very own eyes. So why? Why wouldn't he choose to help his friends? To help people that he loved? To help people that were devoted to him? Followed him? Loved him? And maybe you've been there before. Again, left wondering why God is, has not come through after all you've given And again, I, I don't have all the answers to that, I'll be honest. But something I did notice of the text that I want to mess it, mention, what I do want you to notice here in the text, even though we don't know all the answers, is notice that Jesus does not dismiss Martha's question here. He wasn't like, how dare you question the Son of God? That's not his response. How dare you? How dare you question the Lord? Right? You of little faith. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't demean her. No, he listens. And we will see later that he deeply grieves this situation, that actually Jesus is in pain too. And again, in the midst of that pain and their pain, he's going to work out this situation for their good. So there is absolutely some hurt here some pain and disappointment in the text. It's meant to read that way, feel that way. But despite that, Martha is still able to say, notice this, but even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I think it's important for us to understand here that when Martha says this, she's not, she's not saying to Jesus, I expect you to raise my brother Lazarus from the dead right now. Again, it's the fourth day. All hope is gone. She has dealt with that. She's mourned that. It's not in her mind at all that Jesus might raise her brother from the dead. No way. What she has in mind here then is, listen, Jesus, I am so hurt. I am so disappointed I do not understand why you did what you did, why you didn't come and help, but yet, but yet, I want you to know that I still love you and I still trust you. I'm confused, I feel lost, but I have not lost trust in you. That's what Martha is saying here. And I want you to all know, I want you all to know this, that actually, last night, as I was reading over this text again, working through the sermon, I read this line and phrase, all of you, I want you to know, 
as many of you I can name, I went in the Facebook group, I thought of all the missional family people, I prayed this over you last night. That all of us who call this church home, that whatever, that whatever pain or loss or grief you may have right now, or whatever pain or loss or sadness or grief you someday will have, that you will come to the place, the same place as Martha comes to right here. Now, this, is not, this is not about me or even Jesus dismissing your disappointment in Jesus. No. Like, bring your disappointment to him. Bring your pain to him. Bring your hurt to him. Again, he did not rebuke Martha for doing that. But isn't it wonderful to see that Martha had not lost hope in Jesus regardless of her struggle? Honestly, honestly, I I love how she phrases it here. It's worth it to underline and highlight this phrase. She says, even now, I would highlight that, underline it, circle it. Even now, I have faith. Even now, Jesus, I believe. There's such great strength and power in that phrase, isn't there? Listen, the problem that you are facing today might seem as impossible as raising a person from the dead. But do you believe that Jesus can work in it and through it even now? Or, let me put it this way, maybe you have a friend or a family member who is far from Jesus. They are dead, dead spiritually. Do you believe Do you have faith to say that Jesus can work in their life even now? Do you have that kind of faith? And to that, to that phrase, Jesus responds. He said to her in verse 25, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus tells Martha exactly what he is about to do. (laughs) He keeps giving hints of it. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, here and now. But how does Martha react? She's like, Jesus, you can kind of feel her frustration a little bit, to be honest. Jesus, I already know that. I already know that on the last day, my brother will experience the resurrection. And and by the way, let me just say this. Martha here really is showing off a little bit of her theological knowledge right here. She's a pretty good theologian. A lot of people say, oh, in the first century, like the women were as educated. Oh, no, no, she knows the scriptures. She knows doctrine. She knows the Old Testament promise that though our bodies will decay and die, that our bodies will once again see God. That's Job 19. She knows Daniel 12, which which promises that the saints, that all those who belong to God will rise, Daniel 12 says, to everlasting life. She was probably with Jesus when he said what he said in John 5 and what he said in John chapter 6, that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. I will lose none of them, but raise them on the last day. So she knows the truth. She knows what will eventually happen with her brother and all those who follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. So let me just say this. This is right thinking from Martha. 
This is theologically true. You can bank on this. We will rise again on the last day. But it's not what Jesus has in mind here right now. And so Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Listen now, this is so important. Jesus does not say, I will be the resurrection. And he isn't claiming to know like secrets or mysteries about the resurrection or the secrets and mysteries of of life. Instead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. As it's, 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 it's as if he is, is literally saying, you say that your brother will rise again, but I tell you, I'm the one who's going to resurrect him on the last day, and therefore, I can do it right now. As the great I am, as God, I am able. I'm able to meet your even now faith. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? So here, it's here we see the result of Jesus being the resurrection. It's that he is the source of life. That's what he's saying. That he is the embodiment of life. That he himself is life. And that's why he can boldly and radically and rightfully say, if you believe this is true, Martha, you will live. You will find life. So please understand, Jesus boldly challenged Martha to trust here that he is the source of eternal life, that he is the champion over death. Listen, outside of Jesus, this is what we know, Outside of Jesus, death is like a, an infinite prison sentence. There's no end. But in Jesus, death is just an invitation to the palace of the king. Death is just a doorway, we sing, into resurrected life. Amen? Outside of Jesus, death is the greatest fear of mankind. But in Jesus, death is the end of fear for mankind. It's a graduation to glory, if you will. It's like putting on new clothes. That's what we have if we belong to Jesus. If we acknowledge him as the resurrection of life, this is what we get. And so Jesus challenges Martha boldly here. He says, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe? Like all of us, she is left with this compelling question from Jesus. A question we all must answer for ourselves. And what is her response? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, I believe. Martha answered very correctly here. (laughs) She said, Jesus, I know who you are. I know who you say you are. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God, I'm convinced. And by the way, I think it's important to to say this as well, that she says this very emphatically. Don't read the English here with a a hint of doubt. That's not how it reads in Greek. It's, it's, It's very emphatic. It's saying, I believe, it's firm. I believe Jesus. I believe in you and what you've said. Basically she's saying, with all that I am, all that I have, I believe it with all of my heart, I believe you. 
And you know, in many ways, in so many ways, this was, this was the moment for Martha. It's the most significant moment in her life. One writer called this her foothold of faith. I love that. The moment that she could look back to and step on to help her grow. The foothold of faith. I love that. You see, we know, we, gotta, we have to wrap our minds around this. We, we know she didn't believe yet that Jesus was going to raise her brother from the dead. Right? She didn't believe that at all. But what she did believe about Jesus up until this point in her life was enough. She doesn't understand everything about Jesus. Notice that. Right? She doesn't know why he chose to delay. She's confused about him in some regard. Why didn't you heal my brother? But even in the midst of that confusion, some uncertainty, maybe a hint of doubt, she could still say, I trust you. I believe you. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And because of that is who you are, I'm going to choose to give my everything to you. Listen, as we close today, you might be here in the room today. There's probably a lot of you. You might hear, be here today saying, I don't have all the answers. Right? I, I don't have it all figured out. I'm a little confused. I don't fully comprehend everything about Jesus. I don't understand every single page of the Bible yet. Well, let me tell you something. Welcome to the club. Okay? But, but, here is what we do know. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who was, who is, and is, who is coming back again. Martha believed that. And so the question that we're left with this morning is, do you? Church family, the message today is really simple from the beginning of John chapter 11. It's simple. Let's believe. In all times and in all seasons of life, in the midst of chaos and confusion, let's believe and let's actually live our lives like we do. Amen? Let me pray for you.